Last Friday, our youngest son, Grant, bought tickets to what they called a football game up in Northwest Arkansas between the Razorbacks and Missouri. The Razorbacks came to play football. I'm not, not sure what else we saw. But what we did see were two communities that clashed. There were lots of unsold tickets at the last minute, so many Mizzou fans came down. And you could see the difference in the communities even as they meshed together. So you could see the gold and the black of Missouri. You could see the red and the white of Arkansas mixed but separate. They had their own identities. You saw calling the hogs from one side and the call of M-I-Z-Z-O-U from the other side. You saw some cheer when some things happened and the other didn't, and others cheer a few times when something happened and the others didn't. Two communities completely mixed together with their own identities, the, the, the things they called them together, their own purposes, their own way of thinking. And that is an example of all communities, is it not? All communities are joined together by certain things, certain purposes, certain goals, certain outcomes, certain characters, certain priorities. I think of, of many of the, I don't see it quite as much anymore, but many of the men who were veterans of World War II and Korea and Vietnam and, and older wars that, that found this camaraderie with other soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen. And they would gather, they gather together annually for reunions because they have a shared experience. And you can tell them all together because they have stories about the same experiences. They have the same hats and the same buttons and the same identifying marks. We see this as well when, when squadrons or ships get together, people who used to serve in certain areas, and they come together for reunions. They're, they're marked by a community that with shared experiences and likenesses, and their goal when they gather is to remember those times. We see this in other ways as well. I know you've been in restaurants before, and you've seen uh, multiple tables or a whole table of women in red hats. The Red Hat Society, gathering together as women. They have their own goals. You can look at their website. It tells you what their goals are to celebrate women. And they gather together, and you can tell who they are. Their external signs of Red Hats tell you what they're about and why they're in that restaurant. We have the same thing in Facebook pages. I know that you have liked Facebook pages that are about a certain person or um, hobby or something that's a subculture in our world, and you are part of that because that particular idea or person or expression unites you with them. The outward signs point toward their unity and their ideals. The same thing happens in the church, does it not? We have redeemed, been redeemed from the world. We've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and we brought in to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God's dear son, says the scriptures. And there are certain things that unite us. We have a past experience with the world before Christ and now we have a present experience with the world with Christ. Those um, experiences unite us how Christ has delivered us from those. We also have shared goals in the sense that the scriptures tell us that we are to be obedient, we are to preach the gospel, we are to live lives according to how God lays it forth in the scriptures, and others will see that and we will be marked externally by things that reflect our internality. So they will know we are Christians by our love. So the way we love each other is a product of all of our ideals and our foundation in Christ because we, we are now residents of a new kingdom with a new king. 
But other people see that because it's an uncommon love, because we are able to love each other and a lost and dying world because Christ first loved us. We are also, so we're known by our love. We are also known by our light, are we not? Let your light so shine. So don't put your lamp under a bushel, but let your light shine. We should be walking as if we are children of light, not children of darkness. And so it's not only our love, but it's our light. It's the external reality of the internal change that has happened in us. But we're also known by our loyalty, our love, the light that is Christ through us, and our loyalty. And where is our loyalty? It's to our king, because we are in that new kingdom. And so we are loyal to our king and we are obedient to what he says. Our lives reflect his character. See, it's not about us. It's about our king working in and through us. Our suffering also demonstrates to the world a righteousness that when we suffer for righteousness, says Peter, instead of suffering for evil, suffering for our own sin, then we have that opportunity to give a reason for the hope that lies within us, an external reality of an inward change. That's what our life is marked by. Well, today in our passage in Isaiah, we are shifting gears. We are shifting gears into the second major section of the second major section of Isaiah. You remember, we looked at chapters 1 through 39 as one section, chapters 40 through 66 as a second section, with a, with a break in the middle right between 55 and 56, breaking that second section into two. At the beginning, these first eight verses that we'll look at today are another way that we understand our Christianity because it is full of the marks of the community of Yahweh. What does the community of God look like? And so today our goal is to, to, to put these last 11 chapters into the setting of Isaiah, but we're, our goal is to make sure we understand what these marks of community are and whether we demonstrate those marks. What they are and do we demonstrate them? Or is that an area that God wants to work on us? So the setting, before we read our text, let's just remember where we've been We're shifting gears here at chapter 56, and we cannot separate 56 from 55, 4, and 3. Remember 52, 13, to the end of chapter 53, we learned about the suffering servant, right? And his ministry to overcome the sin of all that would be his children, all who would believe. And that ministry then has an effect that we learned about in chapter 54. It has a, a group of people and how it's seen in that group of people and the effect that it has in the world in chapter 55. And now in chapter 56, we are moving to a wider um, look even more. Remember when we got to chapter 40, we said our eyes moved from that, that time of Isaiah in the, the late eighth, early seventh century. And it was still Isaiah writing, still Isaiah speaking, but he had his eyes set forward to the Babylonian captivity. And so those people who a hundred and some years later would be taken into captivity in Babylon, chapters 40 through 55 were directed most um, securely and soundly at them. Had an application for Isaiah's day, which we looked at throughout, but it had that captivity and the release from captivity in mind because remember the overarching fact, they're being released from captivity, but there is no rest for the wicked. Remember? 
We'll see that phrase again in this section as well. Not today, but in this last section. So there is a physical deliverance, but the physical deliverance doesn't accomplish everything that's needed. The primary thing that's needed is a spiritual deliverance, which is why we end up with the work in the four servant songs, understanding how that deliverance would be. So now we're entering this time where that group of people is being released. Remember Cyrus and his decree to let them come and the remnant comes home. But there's still the promise of the Savior that has not come. The promise of the servant, the promise of the Messiah. There, there are realities that are given to the people of God in this day if they are obedient according to the word of God, if they, if they keep his covenant. But they're coming back into a world where not everyone has had the blessings that they have had of trying to keep their religion pure in captivity. They've been amalgamated into where they are. And so there's conflict between the people who are still in the land and the people that come back to the land. There's leadership issues. And, and this is what chapter 55 through 66 deals with in context, that struggle not yet fully redeemed from sin, but the promise of the Messiah. And for all of those who are obedient to the covenant, they receive those blessings. But it's also a picture of our life, isn't it? It's a picture of where we live between the advents. For Christ has come, but he has not yet come again. Christ has come and we have tasted of the goodness of the Lord. We have tasted of that salvation, but we're in an already not yet situation, aren't we? We have received the benefits of salvation, but we're still fighting sin. We still have poor leadership at times in our world and in, in the church at large. We still have struggles because sin is in the world, and yet we are walking with a foretaste of what will happen in the new heavens and new earth. That's the setting of chapters 55 through 66. One writer sums up the local context this way. This is Alec Motier in his commentary. In the returned community, Isaiah sees a replication of the Jerusalem society he knew, and he uses pre-exilic terms to describe it, so pre-exile terms. The community under inadequate leadership, now every one of these, these characteristics is a summary of what is taught to us in chapters 55 through 66, and he gives the references. I'm not going to bog the quote down with all the references that he gives, but think of this as a summary of what's going on of the people that are coming out of captivity in these last 11 chapters. The community under the inadequate leaders will be spiritually divided with much evidence of false religion on the one side, and a deep sense of sin and a spiritual longing on the other. The prophet answers this longingly, this longing by encouraging great expectations. The Lord himself will intervene, bringing healing and peace and provision. Zion will become glorious, the focal point of all the earth, the center of the new creation. Central to all as the focal expectation and the sole agent of the coming salvation and vengeance is a messianic figure, the anointed conqueror. And in, in Motir's division, this last section of the book, these last 11 chap chapters, he has over the heading, the anointed conqueror. The first setting is the king, the second, 40 through 55, is the servant, and now we have the anointed conqueror. So all of that that he gives as a description are found in chapters 55 through 66. But doesn't that also sound like our own reality today? It's what we live in. 
There are poor leaders that we are under in the government. We, we know that within the church at large, we see evidence of poor leadership on a regular basis. We see a fighting of sin. We see times that the church fails and times that the church glorifies God. And we, as true believers, are the recipients of the work of the Messiah, who in Isaiah's day had yet to come, and our day has come, but we are still living in the already not yet of our salvation. And, we, and I'll, I'll show you why I think this, this has its uh, importance for us in the same way it did the returning exiles. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 62. Or 61, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61. Beginning in verse one. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. Now just stop right there because in Luke chapter four, Jesus sits down in the synagogue and opens up the scroll of Isaiah and reads right up to that point and then what does he say? This scripture is fulfilled today in him. So he reads it and he says that just the most unimaginable thing that he is the fulfillment of that. And this is how I know that this applies to us because this verse and Isaiah, this verse and one phrase out of verse two, Jesus says is fulfilled when he comes to the earth to do his work, to live and to die and to be raised again. Now look at the very next line, the second line of verse two. And the day of vengeance of our God. He does not read that when he says this has been fulfilled. Why does he do that? Because he has come the first time to deliver from sin. He comes the second time to deliver final judgment. So this passage is right in the section that Jesus says of himself that it's fulfilled in him, in his coming. And if that's the case, it describes our life as well. And if we moved through, I'm not going to take you there because we'll get to there, but if we move through in chapter 65 and chapter 66, we'll see two sections that talk about the new heavens and the new earth and the final judgment. So in our section, we are moving from essentially the day we came to know Christ until Christ returns again. And all of that is covered in this section. So we are going to go back and forth between the promises of God and the failure of the people, the mercies of God and the failure of the people, the promises of God and the failure of the people. But what's going to drive us forward is the promise that Christ is coming again and, will and, and he, will, he will cause all of the blessings of God to quit being already and, be, and the not yet parts of those blessings will come and join them in the new heavens and new earth. All of that is in these last 11 chapters. Whew, that's as short as I can make that. But you need to see this division. Otherwise, if you don't see this division, you can go through and read it for yourself. I hope you've already done that. It doesn't take but a few minutes to read these 11 chapters. And with that in your mind, you can see the trajectory of where we're heading, ending with the new heavens and new earth and the final judgment. So there's no, as one commentator said, there is no universalism in Isaiah's speaking. There's no universalism here. It sounds like that there is a works-based salvation that all you got to do is do certain things and you were promised um, this blessing. But Isaiah is very clear that the only way you will do those certain things is if you are united to the servant. 
There's no separation there. That's why the placement of Isaiah 56 is so important. So turn back to Isaiah 56 and let's stand together as I read the first eight verses, which is our text this morning. Thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The grass withers and the flower falls. The Lord you may be seated. So one thing we need to do right from the beginning is what we've done throughout Isaiah. We realize Isaiah is writing in a certain time period, and he uses the language of his day, but oftentimes he is speaking, whether he knew it or not, he is speaking truths that are spiritual and not merely physical, that are um, new covenant truths that he's speaking in old covenant language because that's what he knew. So the right worshiper would, would come to the temple with the right sacrifices. The right worshiper would obey God and his old covenant standards. So we know that we are new covenant believers, that th that old covenant is not our governing body anymore, that we are under the new covenant. We are under what Christ has accomplished. And yet, the truths in the Old Covenant are also present in the New Covenant, are they not? Because God never changes. And all the law is a reflection of God's character. All the law is a reflection of his perfection. So we don't need to be caught up in the fact that, okay, well, that means we have to go do sacrifices again. We don't need to be caught up in those ideas because we know already from Isaiah, we've seen it in almost every chapter, how we have been able to see the truth of God and see it delivered to those in Isaiah's time and applied to us because of the, the, the nature and the character of God and his work in Christ. So we do that same thing here and continuing until we finish the book. 
So in these eight verses, we are shown four characteristics of Yahweh's covenant community. And you won't see the outline up there today either. Some of you, that will make you happy. Some of you will make you sad, but you won't see this outline up on the screen. Four characteristics of Yahweh's covenant community. The first one we see in verse one and two, Yahweh's covenant community is evidenced by obeying Yahweh's commands. Yahweh's covenant community is evidenced by obeying Yahweh's commands. And I'll try to read those multiple times so those of you who take those notes um, will be able to write them down. So I want you to look at these first two. Um, first thing we see in, verse 50, in chapter 56, verse one, thus says Yahweh. So our, our hearts and minds, as we have all the way through Isaiah, we're not released from the fact that we're hearing the word of the Lord. Isaiah is speaking it and writing it, but we're hearing Yahweh's word. Thus says Yahweh. And look at this first couple of sentences. Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my uh, salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed, will be revealed. This is a great summary of the whole book. I don't remember where I read this. I've seen several people reference it, but I don't remember where I first read it. But if you think of this, keep justice and do righteousness, that is the first 39 chapters, is it not? That's all we dealt with was kings who were not, remember King Ahaz and all of his, his um, disobedience and, the, and what it cost the nation? And he had all these opportunities to be obedient and God challenged him and he still did what he wanted to do. It's the fight demonstrated to us that we're called to righteousness, but we fail at doing it. And it was shown in spades. So those first 39 chapters, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. That's chapters 40 through 53, isn't it? That's the revelation of the character of God in the Messiah, in the servant, of all we learned about the servant, culminating in the suffering servant in chapter, the end of chapter 52 and the, all through chapter 53. So I think that's helpful for us to see if we look at it that way and say, is that what God intends? Well, Last, God's not on my speed dial. Is he on yours? Just to call up and say, hey, am I interpreting this right? But it sure does look like that is a great summary of everything that's gone before in the succinct summary that God would give to his people. That there is a call to righteousness and it's a hard fought fight. And if you're not submitted to God, you will fail. And there is one who comes who is perfectly righteous according to the mission of God and the power of God who now comes. And so this idea of justice and righteousness is an outflow of God's what? It's his character. It's his character demanded of his people, but provided by his son, who is the perfection of righteousness and justice. So this first evidence the, the covenant community is evidenced by obeying Yahweh's commands. First, to keep justice. Second, to do righteousness. Why? Because salvation is coming. That's what's shown to us right there. Keep justice and do righteousness. Now, that itself is over and over and over, this pairing of justice and righteousness, we find over and over in the book of Isaiah. We find it in ways to show that it is God's character that is the servant's character. It's the character of God's works. It's what's demanded of his people and it's what's provided through the servant. Let me just remind you of some. 
You don't have to turn to all of these. There are dozens of times that these ideas occur in one section. I want to draw our attention to a couple. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 1, in verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now are murderers. You remember all the way back, there were, we've had a couple of sections that bring us in Isaiah to this tale of two cities. This is the way she was established in justice and righteousness, but now when God comes to look, it's not there. Now what he finds is murderers and those who do not seek justice. But there is a solution. Just six verses later in chapter one, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. So the character of God that will redeem us, those are the marks that Isaiah says will bring us into our salvation, the justice and righteousness of God exhibited in the servant applied to those who are tied to the servant. In chapter five, that parable of the vineyard, for the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. He planted them firmly. And you remember the parable. He watered them, he tended to them, he took care of them. And then he comes back to the vineyard and he should see fruit because he is the perfect vineyard keeper, but he doesn't. He sees the opposite of the way that they were planted. Nine verses later in that same chapter. But Yahweh of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So even though they failed, God is still working out of the same characteristics. The promises and the, the condemnations are constant back and forth in Isaiah. Chapter nine, we move into the promises taken that are brought forth by the Messiah. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. You have failed Israel, but I am sending one who will not fail. You have failed to obey me, but I'm sending one who is the rightful heir to the throne of David, who will rule in justice and righteousness, and you will be the beneficiaries of that. Chapter 16, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. There is our messianic king. Verse 17 of chapter 28. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Now that is sobering, is it not? The same justice and righteousness established by God and, and fulfilled in the Savior will also be the foundation of his judgment, his justice and his righteousness. So therefore, we as believers know that his judgment is just and righteous. Chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. That's the promise of God's restoration in chapter, in chapter 32. You, the, the people of God have failed in this, but God will reestablish what he intended all along. 15 verses later in chapter 32. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. Chapter 33, verse 5, Yahweh is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. 
our verse here in chapter 56, verse one, and then twice more in chapter 59, nine and 59, 14, we are going to see these terms juxtaposed again, both for God's salvation of his people and his judgment of the people, the failure of the people overcome by the Messiah. So I hope you can see just with this little tiny rabbit trail that when 56.1 starts out, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. That's a summary of where we've come and we have to connect with that. Because if we are ones who have been united with that Messiah, Jesus Christ, then our life needs to reflect the character of our King. We, there's no choice in this. It, it's not a matter of, we have to keep this straight now. You, you need to keep this straight. It's not a matter, and Luke mentioned this earlier, it's not a matter that we do these things so we will be saved. It's a matter that we do these things because we have been saved. If we are truly now worshipers of the one true God, if we are truly brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's dear son, then our character now needs to match the character of our king. And in Isaiah and all through scripture, it's brought in these terms of justice and righteousness. And if you'll think about that just for a moment, the idea of righteousness is an internal um, character trait that is given to us by the Messiah, and justice is the outworking of that. And it includes all of those commandments. It includes the commandments to love. It includes the commandments to serve. It includes the commandments to pursue holiness. Every commandment that we find in Scripture can be placed under this as an outworking of the work that the Messiah has done in us. And if we get those things mixed up, you're going to spend, you will have, Luke talked about assurance this morning, you will have no assurance. You'll never have assurance because your work will never measure up and inherently you will know that. So we rest in the work of the Messiah. And as we rest, guess what we get to do? Work. Our resting is obedience. We've learned this already in Isaiah. So we're just, what, what God has done for us in this little introduction is to remind us of everything that we've learned. Righteousness and justice has always been the qualification because it's always the character of God. Men ha and women have failed at it and God is faithful to the covenant which brings the Messiah to bring righteousness and justice to his people so that we are empowered to live that way. Even in, when we sin, we are repenting, which is an act of righteousness, and we are then get bearing fruit of repentance, which is an act of justice toward God. All of that is assumed, and if we miss it, we will think we have to work for our salvation because the language is strong. And the language is strong because God does not want it to escape our notice that if you are not bearing fruit, you're not attached to the vine. It's a warning to us. So Yahweh's covenant community is evidenced by obeying Yahweh's commands. Keep justice, do righteousness. Why? Because salvation is coming. And that's good for us as well, right? In Isaiah's day, the Messiah had not yet come. In our day, he's come once but hasn't come again. So this, this statement covers us as well, but there's also other commands in verse two, aren't there? Blessed is the man who does this. Now some commentators think does this is keep justice and, or keep justice and do righteousness. Some think it's what follows. I think it's both. They're, inter they're interchangeable, not in their, in their call to the command, but you can't do one without the other. 
Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. Now, that, that change is just reiterating the, what we already know. This is human beings as individuals, the son of man. That, all he's doing is, is using a term that talks generically about mankind, but also specifically about each one of us. And remember, our ladies in the room are not just, we can't just look, I can't let you look at this and say, well, that doesn't have to do with me. It only has to do with the men because it's mankind. It's all of us. So all of us, now in the middle, we have a blessing. Blessed is the man or woman, the one who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Now we cannot, let me start with the Sabbath idea. I think I'm probably gonna do a whole sermon on the idea of Sabbath um, before we get to chapter 58 where the idea comes up again. So today, I don't want to spend a lot of time defending any viewpoints because the purpose here is not a legalistic don't work for 24 hours. The purpose here is an understanding that if you are not profaning the Sabbath, then you are, all of your life is marked by worshiping and trusting God. And the fact that people see it one day a week is evidence. It's the righteous heart leading out into actions. Now, I know there's much discrepancy, especially in the Reformed community, of whether the Sabbath is still for us today. Do we still have to keep it as the confessions say? Why is it moved from Saturday to Sunday? What does it mean for a new believer? I don't want to take the time for that here, but I think we need a reminder of that. We covered it when we went through Colossians that was a long time ago, so we need to cover it again. Um, we also covered it when we went through Romans. So I, I, will, I will cover that in more specifics, but remember here, the idea of keeping covenant and not profaning it is the idea that your life is totally committed by faith to God. Because what, at the most basic level, what was the Sabbath for a faithful Jew? The Sabbath was that day that you trusted God to provide for all of your needs because you did not lift a finger. You trusted God that on that day he would feed you and clothe you and keep you safe and do all the things that you did on a normal day, but it was an outward expression of your daily commitment and faith toward him as you worked that now people see, listen, he's the same God if I don't work. He may provide through my hand in the plow or the bread that I bake or the clothes that I make on six days of week. But because it's tied to his creation, and because it also, in the second iteration of the Ten Commandments, is shown that it's because he has delivered them from Egypt, that now we rest on one day a week because that's how we live every day of the week. So the call here is a broad command to have faith in God and obey the covenant, be obedient to what he says. Look back at your text here. Blessed the man who, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it. And when we look at the commands of the Sabbath, profaning was working, taking things into your own hands instead of trusting Christ, trusting Yahweh on that day, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Now, those are two ways of saying the same thing, even though they might seem like they're opposite things. If you are living your entire life in obedience to God and everything that he says, you're endeavoring to be blameless before him by obeying, Remember the Old Testament understanding of blameless. It's not perfection. It is a heart turned toward God. That every time he speaks, I'm trying to obey that. It, that, uh, that my mind is encapsulated with him. It's captured by him. So if, if that is what we're doing, then we're turning away from evil. 
Because all of what God commands is in essence turning away from what's evil and turning toward what is good and righteous and what pleases him, which will, he says um, in the very next verse. So he keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, verse two, and keeps his hand from doing evil. This is the one who is blessed and it's the broad category of doing what God commands and it's gonna be fleshed out in terms of loving him and serving him and worshiping him as these eight verses go on. So the covenant community, Yahweh's community, is marked by things that um, show obedience to the word of God, first and foremost, it's evidenced by those, by those things when we are obedient. And for us, we can take these and place them over every New Testament command that we find. If we are going to be faithful to trust God with everything that we are, then we are never working for our salvation. Anything God grants us through our work, fruit that is spiritual, earthly blessings, it all comes from him, the father of lights, James says, right? Every blessing comes from him. When we start working in our world as if we are the ones who are the power behind our work, we are the ones at the power behind our love and, and our service, and it's all about us, we've moved into idolatry, and we are not doing things that please God, and we are not doing things that reflect to the world a dependence upon the God who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. We're drawing attention to ourselves. So we're not evidencing that we are part of his community. We're evidencing that we're the center of our community. So all of the New Testament commands that we are guided by fall into this. And remember, this is a, a, a broad overview of what we've learned and what we're heading toward. So not only is the covenant community evidenced by obeying Yahweh's commands, keep justice, do righteousness, because salvation is coming, we're also to keep the Sabbath, do no evil, because we'll be blessed. That is the overarching message of what's coming. Secondly, the second characteristic of Yahweh's covenant community. Yahweh's covenant community is expanded by Yahweh's inclusiveness. Outcasts are now welcomed. His covenant community is expanded by Yahweh's inclusiveness for outcasts are now welcome. Look at verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. So here he has two groups of people, the foreigner and the eunuch, and then in verse four and five, he will reverse and start with the eunuch first, and six and seven, he'll move to the foreigner. So he mentions foreigner, then eunuch, then he deals with the eunuch, and then the foreigner. These are the outcasts. These are the outcasts. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse one, and those who um, have been emasculated, they're not allowed to come into the assembly. They are forbidden to come into the assembly. There, there are many views on why this is so, but it is foundation. They represent something that is not holy because they are not the way God created them. So it's not about the person, it's about the state. And most of the time, the, the way this came to be was that eunuchs were mostly civic servants. Many times civic servants were made eunuchs because they were in charge with a lot of authority in a government or a household, and this ensured they would not use that authority for nefarious means with the women that were underneath them. 
They could be trusted with wives and daughters in a household. So many times the eunuchs were in their state because they were civic officials and it came to mean just anyone who was this way uh, because they voluntarily did so, because it was a worship rite of a foreign religion, because it was by birth, but they were forbidden from the assembly. Foreigners, there were certain foreigners that were forbidden, just you can find this also in Deuteronomy 23, certain foreigners that were forbidden then, but a generation or two later were allowed. But other, other groups like the Ammonites and the Moabites who were, they were specifically strong enemies of Yahweh and his people, they were forbidden for all generations, for eternity, even under the 10th generation. And that, what that means is forever, all the generations. <coughs> So if you were in these communities, you were outcast from the people of God under the old covenant. Now, God gave hints of his intention, didn't he? Who is the first person you think about of a Moabite who's brought into Yahweh's family? Ruth. Ruth says over and over at the beginning of the, bo- uh, the book, Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess. Over and over and over we hear that in the book. So we see these pictures that God is full of grace and he's given us uh, seeds that will bear fruit later in the people's understanding of what he intends. So we have foreigners in eunuch. The foreigners tempted to say that they will not be allowed to be in the covenant community because they are not Jewish. Now, God allowed for proselytes in the Jewish religion, but the foreigners being pictured here as one who would think, I want to come, but he'll probably tell me I have no place in his family. The eunuch is brought saying something a little bit different. The eunuch is brought saying that I am a dry tree. So what the eunuch might say in this picture, remember, we're, we're talking about people, but we're basically talking about categories, right? Those who are outside of the covenant community. God made covenant with Israel, And there are those outside that God is opening the door because it was always his intention to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people for himself. Always his intention. We're seeing that, uh, the glimmer and clarity of that even in in these verses. So the eunuch would say, I'm a dry tree. He can't have kids. He He cannot reproduce. Well, in that culture, not being able to reproduce meant your name was forgotten. You, You had no one to carry on your name. It, it, was, it, was a, it was a mark of shame that when you died, there was no one to carry on your name and you would be, for, you would be forgotten. I'm trying to find who it was. I think it was Absalom. Absalom um, did this in the Old Testament, didn't he? He had no children, so he built a statue, a, mo- a pillar, the Bible says, a monument, so that his name would be remembered. So I think that idea of Absalom um, is what's before us in these verses talking about the eunuch. So the primary issue is that foreigners will be brought in, foreigners and eunuchs, those who were not formally part of the covenant, those who the Israelites would have been, um, unless their hearts were turned toward God, these were the people the Israelites would have kept out, they would have disdained. The New Testament is full of this from the Pharisees, isn't it? If you're outside of Jews, of the Jewish nation, then you have... You, you have nothing. You have no part of us. And yet we'll see in many passages of Scripture that God always intended this. Just, just think about Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, where he talks about those who were far off and those who were near. The Gentiles who were far off, the Jews who were near. And God has brought them together in one new man, which refers to the church. And he's brought them together. Why? Because of the work of Christ 
who has knocked down the dividing wall between them. And then it's this rich description of who they are together in Christ as the church. This is what we're seeing here. The foreigner, the eunuch, representing everyone outside of the covenant. If they are obedient and love the Lord and worship him, the New Testament would talk about spirit and in truth, their hearts are drawn to him, then the salvation is theirs as well. Look back at your text. The covenant community is expanded by Yahweh's inclusiveness because outcasts are now welcome. But the third characteristic, Yahweh's community is given Yahweh's blessings for covenant obedience. So you're being brought in, the foreigners are now being used as the example, but these blessings come to everyone. We'll, we'll see that as the text goes. But the eunuch first and then the foreigner are given our examples. So the first thing, the eunuch who holds fast to the covenant will be blessed with the family's name. Look at verse four. The eunuch who holds fast to the covenant will be blessed with the family's name. For thus says Yahweh, verse four, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, totally devoted to God in all areas of their life, who choose the things that please me, okay, that's a different way of saying that they, that they keep their hand from doing evil, right? Keeping the Sabbath, keep your hand from doing evil, not profaning it, keeping the Sabbath, do what pleases me. Well, let's just stop there and say, how do we know what pleases God? Is it just whatever we think? We know what pleases God because he reveals it in his word, doesn't he? And we know what pleases God because we know his character and he's given us discernment to discern good from evil and so we should be pursuing good things and not evil things and those are the things that please him. The things that are above, as Colossians says, not the things that are of the world, the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the, the earth, the way God loves us, not the way the world loves each other. The, these are separated by the nature and character of God. So the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who choose the thing, the eunuchs, plural, who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. That covenant, I'm convinced that in this passage, that covenant is specifically referring to the, to the promise and carrying out of the gift of the Messiah. It, it can be used of all of the commands of God. God has made a covenant. He's made several covenants in the scriptures. And all those covenants are leading to the way God redeems a people for himself. And so keep holding fast to the covenant God. We have seen this language about the Messiah in chapters 40 through 55. And so holding fast to this, to the covenant here, is specifically holding fast to the means of grace, which is the Messiah, the suffering servant, the one who will come. So you're holding fast to what God has said he will accomplish in his covenant to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. And those of us who are in Christ are rewarded because Christ has done all good and no evil and we are now in him and we receive the blessings because we're seated in the heavenly places with him. So that is the promise to the eunuchs which are representative of the outcast, those who were not part those whose salvation they were far off before, but now we see God's heart. But there are blessings that flow. These are the requirements, totally committed and devoted to God, pursuing the things that please him, holding fast to the work that is done and will be done by the messianic servant, carrying out what God has commanded. There's blessing in verse five. 
I will give in my house and within my walls. Now for the eunuch, that's great language, isn't it? The eunuch has been kept away from the assembly. You can't come to worship. You cannot enter in. And now you're not just entering into the courts, you're entering into the Holy of Holies within my courts, within my walls. The promise has brought you in. This is joyful news. This is joyful news for us as well because when Christ died and rose again, that curtain was ripped in half from top to bottom so that we can enter in because now we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. We can go into the presence of God because of the work that Christ has done. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. There's where I think we're referencing what we learned about Absalom in, in 2 Samuel chapter 18. Better than sons and daughters. I am a dry tree, the eunuch says. I can have no children. God says, I will give you better than that. I will give you access to me and I will give you my name. Look back at the bottom, at the, at the end of verse five. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Shall not be cut off. So this is an eternal name. This is the name of God himself. This brings up all the uses of names in Revelation when the, the, the name of Yahweh is placed on us. A name that no one knows is placed on us. <clears throat> so the promise is you might not have physical children, but your name will be remembered because my name will be remembered and I will give you my name. My, and you have access to me that the law forbade. The law forbade you from doing that. And I want you to put yourself in the place of Philip the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter eight. He's coming along, and we, we referenced this earlier, but he's reading in Isaiah 53, verses four through seven. <clears throat> God picks um, Philip up and brings him there, and the Philippian eunuch, who's somebody that's royal, somebody with a lot of clout and responsibility, sitting in his carriage, and, and he asks, Who's, who's he speaking about? Is the prophet speaking about himself or someone else? And what's Philip telling? He tells him about Jesus. Imagine you being Philip and you've just learned that that is about Jesus and there's water. What prohibits me from being baptized? You've received salvation and then three chapters later, you read this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine sitting next to him and he's reading, he's got back in his carriage and they're moving on. He continues reading in the scroll and he comes to this point. You think he might have something to say to you that was joyful? Now this is how that happened. This is how what happened to me back there with Philip happened because this was always what God intended that those who were not part of the nation of Israel would come and be united to God if they were united to his servant, his Messiah. So the promise, there is blessings for obedience. Remember the order that we've established here. Let's not get confused. This order that we've established here is that the Messiah has been promised. His work has been described. And now we're talking about the remnant. We're talking about the people who have placed their faith and trust in that messianic figure. Not only does the eunuch, will the eunuch be blessed who holds fast the covenant, but the foreigner who holds fast the covenant will be blessed with the family's worship. So we're not trying to separate these. Eunuchs get one thing, foreigners get another. Remember, this is a metaphor, a picture for all who come to Christ. Verse six. <clears throat> and the foreigners 
who join themselves to the Lord. That's the same phrase that's used in the first part of chapter, verse three. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. And how are they joining? To minister to him, so to serve him. To love the name of Yahweh, so from the heart, an internal um, response to God, and to be his servants. Remember, servants from here on out, I think I've already alluded to this, but from here on out, servants is always plural. This whole section is marked by the servants of God, their failures and God's grace and how he applies it to those who are truly his servants. And this marks them out. Those who minister, they serve him, they love him, and they, they're, they're the, the ministering to him and the, be his servants, the ministry is the outworking, the being his servants is what the heart that it, that ministry flows from. So this is another holistic picture of those who want the blessings of God need to be tied to the Messiah who is the exact representation of the being of the Father and who in his perfect work, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, has granted the gifts of repentance and faith that lead to the ability to live righteous and justice-seeking lives because we mirror the character of our King and it's required of us and we do it because he did it in us first. But it's required of us. So we must work. We must serve. We must seek justice. We must do righteousness. These are non-negotiables for the church. The, the church is about demonstrating the character of God as those who are the redeemed. Those who have received the blessings of God because of the perfection of the work of his son. And now we are demonstrating and revealing to the world the king who saved us. But look how it shifts in the middle of verse six. Everyone, everyone. This is how we know the foreigners and eunuchs are representative of everyone. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. We've already covered what that looks like. These, verse seven, I will bring to my holy mountain. Now in Isaiah, what is the holy mountain? It is the place of the temple, which is the place where God dwells right? It's the place where God dwells with his people and his people can worship him and he set the parameters of how that will be. We learned that all the way back in chapter two. I don't have time to go back and read again, but this is where the nations are going to come. Remember in chapter two, the nations are going to come to the holy mountain because they're going to learn about Yahweh through the righteous lives of his people and they're going to come and ask him what is true and what is just. That's right there in Isaiah chapter two. Now we're seeing the fulfillment. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. So not only will they come, but they can come in and worship. Those who are excluded from worship can now come in and worship because they love this God. They are servants of this God and God welcomes them in. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Now, let's not get too far away here. Who is our burnt offering and sacrifice? Christ. It is Christ himself. He is the one who's been given as the sin offering. And he has been given as the sin offering in our place if we place our faith and trust in Christ and we repent of our sins. If we're living the life that Isaiah expects of those who have been affected by the ministry of the suffering servant. So our sacrifice that's accepted, this is why we talk so much about God sees us through Christ. It's Christ who stands in our place, his righteousness credited to our account. He loves us when we're unlovable because he loves his son who is in us. This is why. 
because he has offered the once for all sacrifice and we are now united to him. So that's what this language, this is old covenant language filled with new covenant fulfillment because of Christ in the work that he has done. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now you'll notice this from Jesus' words when here in a verse from Jeremiah when he goes into the temple. And he's angry because of that, the, the house of prayer being turned into a den of thieves. Because the place where those, those market people were set up, that was the place that the foreigners were allowed to come in the outer courts to pray. That's where they were allowed to come. And yet they set up their shop there. And so Jesus say, it says, this is, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you are getting in the way of that because this is the place the nations are supposed to come in the Old Testament economy. We also know that in Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43, I'm not going to take the time to do it because I'll run out of time this morning, but he prays this thing. This very thing, that this temple that he is dedicating in, the, in that passage would be a house of prayer for all the nations. So at the inauguration of the temple, we know that this is to be true. This is the fulfillment. And how does it happen? Because of the suffering servant and his work. Well, the fourth characteristic Yahweh's covenant community is evidenced by obeying Yahweh's command, is expanded by Yahweh's inclusiveness, is given Yahweh's blessing for covenant obedience. Finally, Yahweh's community is built by Yahweh's faithfulness to his promise. I gathered the outcast of Israel and I will gather the others as well. Twofold, look at verse eight. Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, so that's what we've been learning about all through Isaiah, right? What God is going to do for his people. And we've gotten hints that it will be expanded to all the world. Sometimes it's been very clear. Sometimes it's been hints. Now we're moving into the section that is assuming that that has always been God's plan. So just as I've gathered the outcast of Israel, and for the people in Isaiah's day and the people, um, they would see that, right? They would see that as, as there are still people who had been northern kingdom who had been taken into captivity who were still followers, the Babylonian captivity, the remnant coming back, he's gathering those who were the outcasts. He had sent them out of their land and now he's gathering them back. And now we're seeing it as well, that we are the true Israel that he is gathering in. And so just as he has gathered us, what's the text say? I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is what Jesus alludes to when he says in John chapter 10 that he has sheep in other folds. He, he's not just come for the house of Israel. He's come for all who will repent and believe. And there are some that they don't even know anything about. This is where we find our marching orders, is it not? When we have the great commission to go preach the gospel, the reason we have that great commission is because God is still gathering people in. And he does it in the same way he's always done. Faith in the Messiah. Repentance of sin and faith in the, in, in the Messiah. In Isaiah's day, the Messiah was yet to come, but they still had faith in the promises of God. In our day, the Messiah has come, but we still have faith in the promises of God that he's not done gathering a people for himself, and he will continue until every single one is gathered. Those are the promises of God. I mean, Luke talked a lot about of assurance. Just take everything he says in here now. If, God is not going to lose anyone. 
He gave them to the son and the son will not lose any and no one falls through the cracks because it doesn't have anything to do with us. It's all his plan. It's his plan. It's his power. It's his purpose. All for his own glory. We're the ones who are blessed. And that's what's brought to us in this passage. Blessings come to those who trust in the Messiah. Now, I have a complete list of New Testament passages. I'm going to spare you. I might send them out to you, though. I have a complete list of New Testament passages that are either blessed are you or blessed are those. So this phrase is picked up in the New Testament for all kinds of blessing that God promises us, and they all have to do with us being in Christ. We already heard read from Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who. Beth, blessed are those who. Blessed are you if. Luke has a, a section of Beatitudes. Matthew has them. And so that is a picture. When you look back at Matthew 5, that is the picture of those who are saved. They're not the picture of who we strive to be. That's the picture of who we are. What we strive to do is crucify sin. So that comes out of us. And when that happens, we're blessed. And the Bible is full of these promises that we will be blessed, that we will be blessed when, when we are being persecuted, we will be blessed if we're persecuted for righteousness sake, that we will be blessed when we, were, when we are following God. We will be blessed if we're not ashamed of him. So I'll send those out to you because that will be great meditation for the days that you don't have the green sheet because I know every one of you is waiting for the green sheet. So this will be great meditation for you until I get that finished and posted that we are the ones who are blessed and we are blessed in Christ because we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So let me just condense this, can I? If you are outside of Christ today, you are outside of his blessing. If, if you have not repented of your sins and turned to Christ, that means place your faith and trust in him, give up everything. You give up faith in your own works, faith in your own desires. The, you give all of that up and say, whatever I learn about Christ, you have convinced me from his word that he is better. That's what it takes to turn to him in saving faith by repenting of sin which is turning away from evil, right? Not having your hand toward evil and doing what pleases God. God has commanded every one of you in this room to turn to Christ. This is not a command that just some people, this is a command to every human being. You must turn to Christ. And you do so by repentance and faith. And Isaiah has told us that over and over and over. Then you were walking in his blessings. The time that you were not walking in his blessings and when you were not holding fast to the covenant. You were not turning away from evil. You were not doing what pleases him. You were not doing the things that mark out the believers. Then your blessings subside for a season. But if you are outside of Christ, today is the day that you receive the greatest blessing. And that's by repenting of your sin and turning, in him and turning to him and receiving the blessings of Christ, which will give you the blessings of Christ himself. Now, as a foretaste, and in the new heavens and new earth forever, face-to-face -face worship. This is why we come to the Lord's table every single time we do, isn't it? We're reminding ourselves of what Christ did and what it means to us. Isaiah has told us the results that the suffering servant bring to his people. And he's told us how we walk blessed by that, blessed by that, and how we don't walk blessed. So when we come together to the table, this is another aspect of the visible outworking of our commitment, of our community. This is a family meal, isn't it? This is where we come as sons and daughters of the king and confess that we have no righteousness that pleases God outside of Christ.
This is where we confess that there are times that we do evil rather than good, that we have not held fast to God in Christ and the work that he's done. We are not walking according to the spirit. We're acting as if we're still under the control of the flesh. We confess those things to God. And then we feed upon the truth of the gospel, which is Jesus's broken body and shed blood that he did willingly. So this is, this is, yes, an outward sign, a memorial, if you will, but this is also a spiritual reality for us. We are truly feeding on the work of Christ on our behalf. We are drinking his blood and eating his body, as he said in John chapter 6, that drove the non-believers away and brought the believers closer to him. Who else? Where we go for the words of life. This is where we come together. We come as community because it's a family meal. Now, what that means is if you have not yet received Christ and you are not um, tied to Christ through faith by repenting of your sins and believing in him, this meal is not for you. It doesn't matter your age. It's not for you because these are the ones who are dependent upon the work of Christ that we are remembering. So we're remembering his work, but just like Isaiah 55 through 66, we're remembering his second coming as well. Because this is the fuel, the reality of who Christ is, what he means for us, how we obey, the blessings that come for it, from that. This is the fuel that drives us forward to be able to spend eternity with him without sin. So we're not only remembering what he's done, we're looking forward to what he will do. And that's coming again. So if you're a believer this morning, you're welcome to join us. If you're not a member of our church, you're still welcome to join us. If you are holding fast to the covenant, as Isaiah said, if you are wholeheartedly committed to Christ, even with your sin and your failings, and you know that your salvation comes from nowhere else but his work, you're welcome to partake with us this morning. If that's not you, you should abstain. The Bible warns you not to take that today. So as the servers come forward, I'll just give you a few minutes to prepare your hearts to take the Lord's Supper. So if you're serving, please come forward.